Are you ready to get into the word? Yes. Turning your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Esther, chapter 4. Esther, chapter 4. As we begin a new series, a new emphasis today on justice. Justice. We're going to be speaking of biblical justice, social justice, racial justice, the topic of justice for the next several weeks. So I pray that through these sermons, you will develop some awareness that maybe you've never had to consider before. I also pray that these messages would move you and I to action. And also, God may raise up or continue to encourage various advocates uh, that we may have in this house as pertains to correcting matters of injustice. So let's look to the Lord. You are not only the only wise God, but you are the God of justice. And we're so thankful that at the cross, your justice was satisfied because your son satisfied your wrath fully and completely. You had to judge sin. And because you love us, you, ch you chose to judge your son in our place. Thank you, Jesus, for being the spotless, sinless, blameless Lamb of God who died in our place. And thank you that after your death, you rose again, as the word tells us, for our justification. We stand here today dressed in the righteousness of Jesus, accepted by you, O oh God, loved, adopted, cherished, blessed. Lord, would you help me today to preach your word? And would you help your people to have ears to hear what thus saith the Lord? And although some of these topics may be new to us, and although some of the illustrations we may use may really stretch us and challenge us, help us to be reminded once again that you are the God of justice and you hate injustice. So may we let your word speak and may our hearts respond along with our feet, our hands, our mouths, our wallets, our entire being. Thank you for a birthday party in East Nashville yesterday where young girls of color in particular could be reminded and celebrated of their value in your sight. Thank you, O oh God, for how you love all people. And we bless you now in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. To leave a mental institution in the early 1900s, a patient would have to pass a very simple test. So if a patient wanted to leave a mental institution, they had to pass a test, a simple test, to see if they were well enough to go back into society. 
And so the caretakers of these facilities would often place the patients in what was called then a water closet, but is now known to us as a restroom or a bathroom. And they would place the patient in a bathroom where they would have the water in the sink running. And in the sink, the stopper would be placed down so that as the water was running in the sink, the water would rise up and eventually spill over onto the floor. So the simple test was this. The patient in the mental institution was given a mop and a bucket. And they were told to mop up the water that was on the floor. And they had 30 minutes to do so. Now, when they put the patient into the water closet or the bathroom, they never turned the water off. The water continued to run, and it continued to spill over onto the floor. The caretaker would say, I'll be back in 30 minutes to check on you to see if you were able to get this spill cleaned up. So in 30 minutes' time, the caretaker would return, go back into the bathroom, and if they found the patient still attempting to mop up the spill without turning off the water, then that meant they were not ready to go back into society. You see, what they expected to occur was for the person to turn the water off, let the water out through the sink by lifting the plug, and then uh, mopping up the spill. But if you're still mopping, while the water is still running, you aren't ready to leave. You see, it's one thing to mop up water, but it's another thing to turn the water off. Both actions are necessary to resolve the problem. And when it comes to doing ministry, I was taught to mop up spills. I was taught to clean up spills. I was not taught to turn the faucet off. And there's a big difference if you haven't figured it out yet. Because many times as Christian ministers, especially if we have been trained in white evangelical institutions as I was trained, we are trained to focus on symptoms and fixing symptoms and mopping up spills. But we are not taught, we are not trained to deal with problems at their causal root. Am I making sense to anyone? And speaking of water, it's one thing to pull drowning people out of a rapid river. And when you see people going in a rapid river, maybe even towards a waterfall, towards their death, it is commendable to reach in and pull them out of the rapids. But it's another thing to go a little further up the mouth of the river and find out why the people are either falling in the river in the first place or why they're being pushed in and then stop it on the causal route. But we pull out, but we don't go up and find out why they're falling in or why they're being pushed in. And speaking of water, it's one thing to send bottles of water to Flint, Michigan to help them with their water crisis that they've had since 2014. This contaminated, this polluted water that's filled with lead as a result of one of their governmental leaders making a major mistake. 
It's one thing to send bottled water in to help with that problem, but it's another thing to deal with that problem, to fix it on a governmental level. And one reason why most Christians don't see matters of institutional injustice is because it doesn't directly affect most of us. And so what doesn't affect me usually doesn't get a response from me. That's somebody else's situation, not mine. And a lot of times I don't see institutional injustice is because I'm so enveloped in privilege that I really don't have the eyes to see what happens to people who have less privilege than I do. Ecclesiastes 5.8 says, if you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice. So Solomon says, if you see it, because it's invisible. It's the roots underground that many of us don't have eyes to see. Uh, we are focusing on the fruit on the tree and not the roots underground that produce the fruits in the tree. And so that's why Solomon says, if you see it, because most of us don't see it because it's not happening to most of us because we've been fortunate to be blessed with certain kinds of privilege. Because things that don't directly affect us usually don't move us. And if we are moved, we are not typically moved beyond acts of charity. We continue mopping up the spill, but we never deal with the problem that the water is still running. All Christians are called to do good works. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to walk in. All of us are to do good works so that men may see those good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And those good works can be a number of things like feeding hungry people, clothing naked people, visiting people in prison or in the hospital, helping people who don't have housing to get housing, adopting children, giving of our financial resources, serving people, evangelizing. We're all supposed to be involved in good works. We're not saved by works, but we're saved to work. And if you really have been saved, you're going to work for the Lord, not to earn your salvation, but because you're thankful for the salvation that Christ earned for you. And you want to show your gratitude by serving your father and serving people made in his image. You want to be like Jesus and you want to meet the needs of the underserved wherever they may be. So we're all called to good works. And that's one reason why God gives us a spiritual gift so that through that gift, we can serve people. We can do the works of God to bless people through his strength and his endowment and his ability working through us to bless others. So we're all to do good works. Are you working? Are you serving somewhere in the kingdom of God? And if it's not at the local church, I hope you're serving in the community, in the name of Jesus, for the cause of Jesus. We're all called to do good works. However, some of us, some of us, some of us are called to the good work of advocacy. Yeah, we're all called to good works, but some of us are called to be advocates. Pastor Chris, what are you talking about? Well, let me tell you what an advocate is. An advocate is a man or a woman who will stand up, speak up, give up, and think up. 
Oh, just hang with me for a minute. An advocate is someone who will stand up. They will stand up to petition the powerful on behalf of the powerless that they can get some power. Oh, wait a minute. I didn't come to church to hear this kind of stuff today. Hang with me because we're in the book. Hang with me because had Jesus not stood up for us who had no power, we wouldn't be able to have a relationship with the most powerful God of the universe. And so if we're to be like Christ, we're to stand up for people who don't have power. And we're to speak truth to power. So we got to not only stand up, we got to speak up. And when we speak up, we speak up to expose unjust systems that create immoral conditions for the voiceless. Speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. That's what we're supposed to do. Proverbs chapter 29 says that the righteous care about justice for the poor. We're to speak up and not just talk about I got mine and you got to work on getting yours. Well, you didn't get yours without somebody advocating for you at some point. You didn't get yours without somebody speaking up a good word for you in the boardroom or to somebody to help give you that job or to speak up for you in the classroom. An advocate will not only stand up and speak up, but an advocate will give up personal time, money, and even their lives to help the helpless. Oh, we're going from works to advocacy. It costs just a little bit more. And then there is the importance of thinking up strategies to correct unjust systems that offers legitimate hope to the hopeless. We just don't pray problems away. We step in and work with God to make sure those problems go away. And we put our hands to things. We think up strategies to correct unjust systems that offers legitimate hope to the hopeless. Frederick Douglass, who was an escaped slave and abolitionist, he was an advocate. Why? Because he spoke out against black suffrage. He spoke out against women's suffrage. And because he had a relationship with a powerful man called Abraham Lincoln, he used that access to speak on behalf of people who didn't have that kind of privilege and access. He spoke to the president and said, I know we're in this war, this war that's being fought over slavery for states to have the right to continue to determine how they want to treat people of color who came in from Africa. I know we're fighting this war, but what you need to do, Mr. President, is enlist slaves into the Union Army to help fight for not only the freedom of America, but for their own freedom as well. And because Abraham Lincoln respected Frederick Douglass, he listened to his strategy and the United States colored troops was born as a result of that. And so this man was an advocate. Susan B. Anthony was an advocate. She was a leader in women's suffrage. She was also an abolitionist and a civil rights activist. Victor Hugo, who was a French poet, novelist, and playwright. If I say to you, the hunchback of Notre Dame, that's Victor Hugo. If I say to you, Les Mis, that's Victor Hugo. 
And when he would write these plays, there would be a level of social consciousness in these plays so that those who would come to the plays would be made aware of the issues that poor people and disadvantaged people go through. Well, this man was a political statesman who fought for the abolition of capital punishment, and he also withstood the incoming regime of Napoleon III. And so he used his power to not only speak on unjust uh, situations, but he used his power to also withstand unjust regimes, and he had to even go into hiding as a result. Now, we like to quote Martin Luther King Jr., but Martin Luther King Jr. liked to quote Victor Hugo, who was born in the early 1800s. And Victor Hugo gave a famous quote that Martin Luther King would often share, and it is this. Where there is darkness, crimes will be committed. The guilty one is not merely the one who commits the crime, but he who caused the darkness. Did you hear that? We so often focus on the people or the person who committed the crime, but we very rarely see or hold accountable the one who created the conditions where the crimes were being committed. So we got to do more than mop up the mess. We've got to turn the water off. In the Bible, Nehemiah was an advocate. He had access to the king, Xerxes. He was burdened for his people back home. And he used the authority and the access that he had with the king to turn it around and not just pad his pockets, but to help his people get the walls put back up back home in Jerusalem. He was an advocate for defenseless people because a city without a wall is open for attack. And so he stood up in the gap as an advocate. We know that Moses was an advocate when he went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. He could have just stayed on the backside of a desert with his wife and children, but he chose to get involved and he spoke truth to power on behalf of slaves who had been in bondage for 400 years. Abigail was an advocate. When David was coming to kill Nabal and even the whole village, Abigail stepped in between so that that kind of atrocity would not happen. She advocated even for her foolish husband, but God dealt with him anyway. Barnabas was an advocate. The early church was afraid of Paul. They didn't think he was really a Christian. They thought that he faked conversion so that he could get inside and start killing everyone. But Barnabas, he chose to be a bridge. He chose to be an advocate. He knew Paul, and he also knew the apostles. So he took Paul to the apostles, and he said, you can trust him because I hope you trust me. I'm telling you, this dude is good. He advocated for him. He spoke up. He stood up, and he gave up even his reputation that they may have thrown Barnabas out because of their fear. But because he had influence and access, he used it to help someone on the outside. And had they not let that man on the inside and acknowledge him as an apostle who was abnormally born, we wouldn't be reading 13 letters written by Paul today. The gospel would not have spread the way that it did across the then known world. But Barnabas stood in the gap as an advocate 
and they extended to Paul the right hand of fellowship, acknowledging that he's one of the pillars that Jesus chose to build his church. Oh, I can go on and on and on. Paul himself was an advocate. Who was he an advocate for? So many people, but let me give you one. Onesimus, a runaway slave. Paul stood in the gap and he told Philemon, if you're going to accept me, I need you to accept my brother who is your brother. No longer look at him as a slave, but look at him as your brother. I know he ran away, but when he ran away, he found Jesus and he found me in jail and I'm bringing him back to you. I'm advocating for him. That's what we need to do. And of course, Jesus is the greatest advocate there is. Matter of fact, 1 John says that he is the advocate. He stands up before God because a lot of advocacy must happen where laws are passed. And the greatest law is that man has sinned and fallen short and we are worthy of death physically and eternally. But Jesus, the advocate, the defense lawyer, went before God in the courts of heaven and he gave himself. The lamb was slain before the foundation of the world so that we could be righteous in the sight of God. He advocated, not only for us spiritually, but if you read the Gospels, he was always ministering to people who were often left out by the religious crowd. He hung out with the prostitutes. He hung out with the the pagans, and he hung out with the Gentiles. He hung out with people that the church just wanted to pass over, so he advocated. He brought women to the table in a way that no other rabbi ever did in his day. He advocated for them when he appeared to them after he had risen from the dead and told them to go and tell the men that I have risen and to meet me in Galilee. He was advocating for women. He advocated for his mother on the cross by saying to John, the beloved disciple, I need you to take care of my mother. He was an advocate, and he called some of us to be advocates. Well, I want you to look at Esther, because she happens to be in the line of advocates as well. And I hope that as I go through this, it will stir up in you a righteous thirst to read this story like you've never read it before. Oh my goodness, you're about to see something that maybe you have never seen or heard before. But in Esther chapter 4, verse 1, It says, when Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. So being good Bible readers, we always ask, what is it that happened? When Mordecai learned all that happened, what happened up to this point in Esther chapter 4? Well, in Esther chapter 3, one of the king's officials, and this is the Persian king Ahasuerus. He had an official by the name of Haman that he had exalted to a place of prominence above all of his other princes and officials. So Haman was the number two man in the Medo-Persian empire. And they reigned from uh, 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 Shushan to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, And the Jews lived in all of those provinces. How did they get there? Oh, if we had time to go back, they got there because of the Babylonian captivity, which was prophesied by Jeremiah because of the Jews' disobedience. So the Babylonians took the Jews from Jerusalem, destroyed the temple in 586 B.C., took them to Babylon. But the Babylonians, based on a prophecy from Daniel, they were defeated by the Medo-Persian Empire. So now we have the Medo-Persian Empire being moved by God to let the Jews go back to Jerusalem. 
And so there were three different deportations where they went back. But what we see in the book of Esther, there's a group of Jews who did not go back home. They stayed in Persia. And there was this man named Haman who had been exalted. And when he would walk through the city gate, which was like their judicial area, and there was a Jewish man there by the name of Mordecai, where everybody else bowed down to Haman, Mordecai stood up. And the reason why he stood up was because the Bible says he was a Jew. And what that implies is because he was a Jew, he trusted in Yahweh, and he bowed before no one but Yahweh, and he would not bow down before man. And so that ticked Haman off, and he wanted to lay hands on Mordecai, but they told him about Mordecai's people. There's a whole lot of them. I need to let you know that if you mess with him, there's a whole bunch of them that's rolling with him. (laughs) And so then Haman devised a plan to not only kill Mordecai, but to kill the people of Mordecai, all of the Jews. He goes to the king, and he tells the king, there's a group of people who don't respect you, who don't obey your laws. We need to annihilate them. The king agrees, gives Haman his signet ring, which is basically his signature, and a decree is developed, and it's stamped and sent out to all of the provinces that at the end of the year, about 10 months' time, all of the Jews will be put to death and they cannot defend themselves. So for all of the Jews in the provinces, the edict goes out that they're going to die, they're going to be murdered by the Persians, and there's nothing they can do to stop it. So when Mordecai gets the news, he puts on mourners' clothes, sackcloth, probably dawn ashes on his head as an outward symbol of a broken heart. And he's mourning about the situation. And so if it were possible, uh, he might have put on a, a, a shirt that says, Jewish lives matter because of the situation to take out the Jews and kill them. Oh, he's struggling. And what we see in this passage is government sanctioned genocide. Genocide is the deliberate killing of a large group of people, especially those of a particular ethnic group, nation, or religion. (laughs) In the Bible, yeah, right here, in the Bible, that they were executing a decree to commit state-sanctioned genocide. This is systemic oppression at its best. This is legalized annihilation of a particular people group. They are being killed because of their ethnicity and because of their religion. This is racism. Racism is the ability to act on prejudice in harmful and even deadly ways. That's why they're being killed. That's why they're being profiled. That's why they're being targeted because they're Jewish people. Now watch this though. They could have tried to blend into society and said that uh, I'm going to proselytize on over to being a Persian because there were no distinguishing marks between Persians and Jews. Pastor Chris, how do you know that? Because when Esther enters into the beauty pageant, and she is Jewish, this beauty pageant to find a wife for King Ahasuerus to replace Queen Vashti, 
Uh, Mordecai, her uncle, says, don't tell him that you're Jewish, which means that there were no distinguishing marks about her appearance that would make her stand out as a Jewish woman. So when the king chose Esther and married her, she looked just like the Persians. And so therefore, the Jews could have blended in but they chose to stand up, maybe through their, their, you could tell them by their hair or what have you, but it was their commitment to Yahweh that made them distinct. But in America, it's hard for my descendants to have blended in. My skin, our skin made us clear targets, not only back then, but even at a Starbucks. Your, your, your skin can... You can't blend in. The Native Americans can't blend in to American, i.e., white culture. And so the Jews, they were going to be killed. The difference between prejudice and racism is this. Prejudice is personal. Yes, it's ignorant, but it's personal. Racism is power. Racism is prejudice plus power that you can hurt people that you don't like. Prejudice, I just don't like you probably because I don't know you and I'm subscribing to stereotypes about you and your people. But when I'm racist, I have the power to do something negatively about the people that I don't prefer or like. And so a lot of times we say, oh, that's racist. No, that's prejudice. But racist is when you can hurt me with the power you have because you don't like me, my goodness. The ingredients for state-sanctioned oppression are these. All you need is a wicked person like Haman. Secondly, a demonic agenda to kill the Jewish people. Why is that a demonic agenda? One, they're made in the image of God. The thief has come to kill, to steal, and to destroy. It was Satan who moved on the heart of Cain to kill his brother Abel. Satan is the one who's the murderer from the beginning. So whenever we're murdering innocent people, that's demonic. But not only that, not only that, these are the chosen people of God through whom every family on the face of the earth is going to be blessed. And God said to Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Why is Satan trying to destroy the Jewish people? Because the Jewish people, before Christ came, they were the seed to get us to Christ. So he was trying to kill the Jews in order to kill the Messiah who was promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, who was going to crush the head of the serpent. So I'm going to kill the kids so that I can get to the Messiah. It's demonic. So if you're going to have state-sanctioned oppression, you got to have a wicked person and a demonic agenda to kill people made in the image of God. Thirdly, you got to have political power. And that comes from a weak, vacillating king like Ahasuerus sitting on the throne who would give his signet ring to anybody. And then fourthly, you need an evil motivation. What's the evil motivation? Because in chapter 3, Haman says, King, if you give me this decree to go out and kill these people, I will put money into the treasury. Because once we kill them, we'll take their treasure and we'll put it into the treasury. So there's always some money involved. There's always some filthy lucre involved. The love of money is the root to all kinds of evil. And I will not only kill people for money, but I'll enslave them for money too. 
and I'll keep them bound for money. I'll flip-flop their neighborhoods through gentrification for money. I don't care about the people. I care about the money. And most of them are professing Christians who they say it's their business plan, but really it's a devil plan. Oh, man, I'm running out of time. I'm going to give it to you as quickly as I can. First thing we see is Mordecai's mourning. And that's the chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Not only is he mourning, but all of the Jews are mourning. Just like you would be mourning if there was an edict passed by the government that says all people over six feet will die in the next four months. Y'all will walk around trying to shrink yourself. You know what I'm saying? But if there was a rule, a law that says we're killing everybody six feet and over, you'd be mourning too. Or if there was a rule that says we're going to kill women who have blonde hair, y'all would be right at the hair place tomorrow, dyeing your hair, doing whatever you can so that you won't die under such a foolish edict. But you know what, though? There are people suffering today, right now in America, because the government has said, we're going to terminate DACA. <laughs> we, we, we know the former president, and I want to try to undo everything he's ever done that's going to help people. Uh, uh, th th this DREAM Act, so that when people came into the country with children from other nations, they would be given access to be able to take advantage of the school system and all the things we have here so that they could not only be better for this country, but better when they go back to their country. But this government saying, no, we're going to end this thing. And now they put people, they're walking in fear because they don't know if they're going to be grabbed. They don't know if they're going to be sent back. And they're walking every day in mourning. And we just can't say, well, I'm a natural born citizen. I don't really got time for that. No, 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 no. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Pastor, you're getting political. Well, if you read your Bible, the Bible is full of politics. I got to keep going. But then we see Esther's ignorance. Look at Esther chapter 4, verse 4. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her because her uncle is out there mourning and he's got on sackcloth. And the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai Watch this, to learn what and why this was. She sees her uncle out there in mourner's clothes. So she says, let me do a good deed and send some clothes to clothe his nakedness. But she doesn't know why he's in that place of mourning and walking around with mourner's clothes. But she's trying to do a good deed because she thinks a good deed is enough. No, doing a good deed to help Mordecai with clothing, that ain't even what he really needs. And to back it up, you don't even really know why he out here struggling and you live in the palace where the decision was made to kill the Jews. You are blinded by your privilege to the degree you don't even know what's happening to your own people. Bourgeois Negroes who get a little something in. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. Want to get out of the hood as quick as they can, but don't have any understanding and compassion and heart for the people who are still trapped there. 
And not only do you understand how it is, you got some resources now to not only help them from a need standpoint, but you can advocate for them as well. Oh, pastor, I'm moving my membership. Well, there's a whole lot of comfortable churches around here that ain't going to touch this stuff. Ostrich Christians put their head in the ground when there's trouble, thinking that the world won't see their head in the ground and the behind sticking out. Don't that look stupid? And a lot of times as Christians, that's how we are. We're so heavenly minded, we're no earthly relevant. And the world needs to know they're pushing towards relevancy and justice, but they're trying to do it without God. We step in and say, there's a reason to push for justice, but let's remember the God of justice. But the people who know the God of justice, we ain't doing nothing on the streets to help folk. And I'm tired of living like that. I'm tired of just mopping up spills. I'm tired of putting Band-Aids on gashes that need surgery. I'm tired of doing stuff that make me feel better, but it don't necessarily make the people feel better. The word of God is convicting me about this. And so Esther is ignorant of the problem because she's insulated and isolated due to her privilege. But look at Mordecai's response, though, in verse 6. Look at his response. Uh, he goes on to Hathak, went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. Verse 7, and Mordecai told him all that had happened and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given to Shushan, that he might show it to Esther. You know, the decree that your husband gave his ring for her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. This brother's calling her to step up and be an advocate. I need you to go in there. I need you to use the power, the access, the influence you have that I don't have out here on the streets and the other Jews don't have in the provinces, but you got it. As a matter of fact, he's going to say later, perhaps this is why God put you in that seat for such a time as this, but don't let me get ahead of myself. So he tells her, let me tell you what's going on here. This is the edict. When oppressed people start talking about their conditions, privileged people ought to listen. Although you may not be going through that because you live in a palace, but when people on the street start telling you what their living conditions are like, you're not to say, oh, well, you know, I don't believe it. Or let me lecture you on how you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and get out of that situation. No, no, I don't believe what happened there. What do you mean you don't trust the police? The police are good people. I never had a problem with the police. So I don't really believe your narrative. I don't trust what you're saying. But I'm here to let you know, God's people, when oppressed people start talking about their conditions, we ought to listen. Where in your life do you hear the cries of the oppressed? Where in your life do you have an opportunity to hear about the pain of the marginalized? Who do you know personally that is suffering systemically? And if you don't know someone that's suffering systemically, you're telling on your privilege. And what the Lord calls us to do is incarnate. 
Don't hate me. I hope you pray for me. But the Bible lets us know to the poor, we ought to become poor. To the Jew, we ought to become like a Jew. To a Gentile, we ought to become. We ought to incarnate and become because God became man to save sinful men. And if I'm going to walk as he walked, I need to incarnate where hurting people are and not just hang out with a bunch of wealthy, rich, well-to-do folks. That ain't Jesus. He was intentional because the gospel is just not John 3, 16. The gospel is also Luke 4, 18, and you can quote me on that because Jesus was anointed by God's spirit to preach the gospel to who? The poor and to set those who were bound free. That's what Jesus was anointed to do. And we sit around here talking about anointing to sing, an anointing to preach, an anointing to write, an anointing for this, an anointing for that. What about an anointing to serve poor people? The Holy Ghost does that too. Mordecai calls Esther, girl, be an advocate. But you know what? Esther has some excuses. Uh, we see her excuses in verse 10. And she says, even in verse 11, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. Well, they told her, him, her excuse. And she's saying, uh, I can't do anything about this issue. Uh, um, uh, uh, I don't have access right now to the king. Uh, uh, th there are laws in place, you know. I, I could die up in here trying to help y'all out. But here comes Mordecai's challenge. He says in verse 13, and Mordecai told them to answer Esther, my cousin, to tell my cousin this. <laughs> Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. Remember, you are Jewish. Don't try to act like you ain't Jewish now. Got some skin lightening and straighten your hair. Don't try to act like you, you ain't Jewish now. For if you remain completely silent at this time, release and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Now, the book of Esther is unique because the name of God is not found in this book. But the presence of God is everywhere. And, and what Mordecai is saying, relief and deliverance is going to come from God. Because God is going to keep his word about his people. And perhaps he wants to use you in the saving of many lives. And that's what he says in the next verse. He says, if you don't help, you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Girl, this is your moment. <laughs> this is your time. You've been wondering what you were sent here for. You were not only sent here to have a relationship with God. You were sent here to show people what that relationship with God looks like. The impact of it to help other people, especially people who are about to die. He says to her, you won't escape 
they'll find out that you're Jewish. Your privilege will protect you forever. Relief will come. But I believe that now is the time for you to step up. And Mordecai wasn't telling her something that he hadn't done himself. Mordecai was an advocate too. He's telling his cousin, girl, this is your moment to save lives. Mordecai, when did you do that? Well, when I worked in the gate, I heard about an assassination plot to kill the king. I risked my life by telling the truth about this demonic situation. I told Esther about the assassination plot. Esther told the king. The king researched it and found out that the assassination plot was true, and they took the two conspirators and put them to death. And so we see Mordecai being an advocate, standing up, speaking up, giving up for someone else who's about to die. And watch this. He represents the people group who's about to put his people to death, but yet he still shows kindness to this man because that's what the love of God does towards sinners. You just don't look out for your own people. You look out for all people who hurting and about to die. Because there's some black folk. You so much in the Black Lives Matter, you really don't have any thought about other lives that struggle. Uh-huh, yeah. I try to keep it both ways. I try to keep it both ways. So you don't run up out of here talking about he sure came down hard on white people. Black folks said, no, he got us too. So it, keep on listening. Justice does the right thing regardless of race. Justice is supposed to be blind and fair. Esther's courage, y'all. Sister said, I'll do it, I'll do it. Okay, I'll do it, Uncle Morty. You got me, Morty. You got me, Morty. I'll be an advocate. Because sometimes... Your moment will find you. You don't have to go looking for it. It will find you. Just be ready when it comes. And she says, I'll do it. I'll be an advocate. And if I die, I'll die. That's what an advocate does. They'll give up their lives. Oh, we love Martin Luther King, but that brother gave up his life. He could have stayed home like a lot of preachers and raised his kids in the church. But he took the church to the streets. And his kids... Miss their father to this day. But we're better off because of his sacrifice. Dr. King put some skin in the game. Esther put some skin in the game. When are you going to put some skin in the game? Just don't pray. Just don't do good deeds. When are you going to put some skin in the game? Esther said, y'all pray for me. Matter of fact, y'all fast for three days, and I'm going in. She said, I'm putting some skin in the game. When I grew up playing in the streets of Baltimore, that concrete was black, and man, it was hard. So if you fell on that concrete playing stickball or football, whatever, you left some skin on the streets <laughs> to show that you were committed to the game. You would get up, have that big strawberry there, you bleeding, and you look down, and some skin was in the street. And one, the fellas, we'd be proud, we'd be crying, but our skin was in the street. <laughs> and we can't do advocacy. We really can't do ministry if we don't put some skin in it. We can't love people from a distance. We got to walk across the street where they are and put some skin, some sacrifice in the game. What's the skin in the game you need to aim towards? Is it human trafficking? Is it the payday loan scam system? Is it the school to prison pipeline system? Are you going to advocate for folks who need better wages like the teachers in Oklahoma? Are you going to advocate for kids who have crippling illiteracy? 
What about livable minimum wages? What about helping homeless people? What about those who are subjected to racial profiling? What about coming against abortion? What about the prison industrial complex? What about the immigration dilemma? Will you put some skin in the game? What about health care? What about killing unarmed blacks? Will you put some skin in the game? And some of us are called to things other people ain't called to. But when God calls you, when God selects you, when God elects you, go. You may not feel adequate, but it ain't about you. It's about the God who calls. Availability is the best ability. Proximity. Get there and let their burdens become your burdens and use your power to help the powerless advocate for somebody. Out of that fast, strong tower, Esther was able to think up a strategy. We said that a, an advocate is someone who's going to speak up, stand up, give up, and even think up. Out of that fast, God gave her a plan. Here's how we're going to do this thing. You're going to have a two-day banquet and all this stuff. You can read the story. But she also says to the king, after the king deals with Haman, puts him to death, hangs him on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai, king puts him to death. The king thinks he's done something to help his bride. But the bride is like, yeah, although things are better for my uncle or my cousin and me, my people are still under this evil edict that went out a couple of months ago with your signet ring and Haman. So he's like, what do you think we should do? Because in that day, the law of the king of the Medes and Persians could not be overturned. So when they would say something, it would have to be done. So she was saying, I know we can't undo the first edict, but let's create another edict. Let's come up with some legislation to help fight the bad legislation. And the good legislation is empower the Jewish people to defend themselves. So that when they come out to try to kill them, they now have authority from the king to fight for themselves. And the king said, do it. Because some of the things in our culture will not change just because we pray. We got to vote some stuff out. We got to vote some stuff through. We got to hold elected officials accountable to the promises they make when they are trying to get elected. And you see them in every neighborhood knocking on the door. And after they win the election, where are they? Can't find them. Nobody answering the phone. No, we got to get them go down there and say, wait a minute. Now, this is what you said. Now, let me see you do what you said. I got some clapping on this side. This side still thinking. People say you can't legislate morality. Just pray that racism and segregation and that the evil system, well, really, it's not an evil system. It's just a peculiar system. That it would go away, that the hearts of Christians would feel good. Well, while I'm waiting for your heart to get right, I got to pass some laws in the meantime to help protect my behind while I'm waiting on your heart to get right. So the law will protect me while we're waiting on your Christian heart to change. And if I keep waiting on your Christian heart to change, you're going to still find me at the plantation. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I said it, I said it, I said it. And I ain't ashamed that I said it. You know what? On the plantation, they, they had integration and diversity at the plantation. There was no justice or equality on the plantation, but there sure was some integration and diversity. That's why integration and diversity ain't the goal. Power is the goal. Esther was an advocate. Maybe God's calling some of us to be advocates.
All of us are called to good works. But who can we step in the system to help, to change the course of actions for someone's life because we not only dealt with it at the ground level, but we also went and dealt with it at the root and the causal level. You know, when I was growing up in my neighborhood, you had to play all three sports, basketball, football, baseball. We didn't have hockey where I was at, but we had those three. And we were street all-stars. Some of us went on to play in high school, one, two, or three of those sports, but we were all street all-stars. And when it came to the sport of basketball, I was born right-handed. So when I played basketball, I naturally shot with my right hand. I dribbled with my right hand. I learned how to go behind my back with my right hand. And I learned how to finger roll like George Gervin with my right hand. Some of y'all know George Gervin. Other y'all, y'all don't know who that is. Look him up. He liked to finger roll from the free throw line. That brother, whap. But I realized that if I'm really going to be dangerous on the court, I got to be able to use more than my right hand. I just can't always go right because the defender will know where I'm going and what I'm going to do. So I had to learn how to use my left hand. I had to learn how to dribble with my left hand, how to shoot with my left hand, how to go behind my back with my left hand, and yes, how to finger roll with my left hand. Because once I could do it with my right hand and my left hand, the opponent didn't know what to do with me. I was dangerous on the court. I could go this way or I could go that way because I trained my... Now, I wasn't used to playing with my left hand. I was used to going with my right hand, but I had to train myself with my left hand. And when I was coming up being trained in ministry, I was trained by conservatives, and I knew how to use my right hand. I knew how to meet needs and to give out backpacks and to do those kind of things, evangelize in community. I knew how to do all that stuff, and I did all that stuff, and all that stuff has its place. But God is challenging me these days. You got to learn how to use your left hand as well. You got to learn how to be an advocate behind the scenes and not just a good worker in front of folk. You, you, you got to learn how to develop a left hand of legislation. You got to know how to develop the left hand. Now, as I develop my left hand, here's what happens. The folks who only use the right hand start calling names to me who are on the left, saying, oh, you liberal now. You a Marxist now. You a progressive now. Oh, we're conservatives over here, and we're going to call them. Well, just call me what you want. Just don't call me late for dinner, and I'm going to learn how to use my right hand in ministry and my left hand in advocacy because when I do both, I'm dangerous to the gates of hell. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7, Paul said to that church, we've got weapons of God in our right hand, and he also said in our left hand. Oh, I'm looking for some ambidextrous ambassadors up in Strong Tower Bible Church. I'm looking for folk who can go right and who can also go left so that together, man, we can make a difference in the world until Jesus calls us home. The Bible says that David served God in his generation and then he died. What's it going to be said about us in our generation with so many needs around us? God is calling us to meet and even to advocate for Join me in praying and asking God, what is my thing?
Who am I supposed to serve? And let's ask God to show us. Father, let's stand. Let's stand, everybody. Let's stand. Oh, man. I'm excited about this. I'm excited about the word. Oh, I'm excited. And I'm asking God, show me. Because when God shows me, uh, uh, let, let, let me say this. Well, let me say You may say, I don't want to hear all this. I just want to go to church. I'm going to hear a nice little word. Three points. Go home. But let your child get shot. Because what happens to you happens to us. And we're going to search the matter out with you. And if there is injustice, you got your church behind you. And not just shot. If something happening to your family or your children in school and they're mistreating, and you call me, when I go, I got about 400 other folk coming with me. That's how we legislate. That's how we advocate so the world will know they're serious. Don't be surprised if God takes us back to those days where the church had to be the church. Because when the church had to be the church in the 50s and 60s, a lot of people chose by their inactivity to almost say, we're not really a part of the church. We're part of a social club. The church is to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And wherever there's injustice, God's people ought to be armors in the army of justice to go and help those who are suffering. We pray for our troops. Let's pray, Father, we pray for our troops who have to take orders that many times they don't agree with. We don't even know what's going on in Syria right now. What, Lord, there's so much confusion in the world. We pray for your mercy upon people who are innocent. We pray, Lord, that there would not be a massive war. But we know, Lord, that before you come, there will be wars and rumors of war. Nation will go against nation. We don't know when you're coming, but we are praying for peace. We're praying for wisdom for governmental leaders. And we pray for people who have access to them to speak your truth. We pray for injustice in our own country. We pray against it. Help us to stop turning the other way, being desensitized, because it really isn't happening to us. So uh, would you break our heart with the things that break your heart? We know we can't do everything, but we can do something. Would you show us how to do good works to make a child's life a little bit better? Lord, I thank you for the kid schools. That when a child walks into a kid school, he or she is told that they can go and they will go to college. Because we become what we behold. So thank you for giving young minds a vision. But many times all they see is death and degradation. You've called us to be the salt and the light. Help this church. Do a major shift in this church, starting with me. Change me. And if I can help somebody along the way, my living has not been in vain. Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or think. Thank you for the power that's in us. We ask that you activate it, that we would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. In Christ's name, amen. Amen, amen, amen. God bless you.